what is the role of a speech and language therapist within critical care? So there are a number of causes of communication impairment in the patients we see on ICU. It's more than a nicety to be able to communicate. Not being able to talk has a huge impact on patients. It's uh, more than just not being able to get their basic needs across. It's being able to ask for reassurance, ask for updates on how they're doing, be involved in treatment decisions, making a rapport with those around them. So without being able to talk, you're literally stripped of your voice. Um, And that can lead to patients feeling disconnected and possibly more inclined to withdraw from therapy. A speech and language therapist will try and help patients to get their voice back if they've got a tracheostomy trying to use speaking valves to get their own voice back if they aren't able to use their voice at all then we might look at alternative forms of communications one of the other things that we get involved with is kind of picking up perhaps where patients are actually suffering from delirium I know that we're not the only professional that thinks about delirium in ICU patients but particularly if it's early days and and we can help to do something to restore some voice or to support their communication in some way that might actually reveal a delirium in a patient that perhaps hadn't been picked up. Conversely, we've had patients where everyone thought they were delirious and actually once we got them talking, they were doing okay. Also in a related way, helping to assess capacity, for example. So if there's treatment decisions that the patient needs to make and there are issues with communication, speech and language therapists are really well placed to figure out how best that patient might be able to understand information, to process it and to express a decision that they've made. And that can be really useful working within the MDT to help us figure out how we're going to help these patients and progress them really through ITU. And being that link and being able to feed back to the MDT is massively important because we can give strategies to our colleagues at AHPs, medical nursing, on how best to get the information we need to get over to the patient and how best we can help them get their information over to us the kind of things that we can look at so Helen was talking about getting involved with using speaking valves for tracheostomized patients and that's brilliant for those patients that that's appropriate for however we have some patients that for a number of reasons might not be able to have their cuff taken down and might not be able to use their voice in that way and for those folk we have something called above cuff vocalization which we can look to facilitate in patients so that's a method of blowing a little bit of air um, at the subglottic suction line on certain tracheostomy tubes and to help uh, somebody potentially voice without disrupting the cuff and that without doing anything to the ventilator circuit. And along those lines with the voice we can do specialist assessments of voice. A lot of our patients post-intubation will have vocal fold injuries and then we can help them out with exercises, laryngeal rehab to get the vocal folds working and also to get the larynx working better for swallowing. More often than not, there's a host of reasons that patients in intensive care end up with swallowing problems. If they're ventilated, whether there's a dyssynchrony between breathing and swallowing, things like altered sensation. If their cups are on their tracheostomy tube, they may not have the right sensory information coming to their larynx and their upper airway to help them know they need to swallow their own secretions. Things like disuse atrophy become, uh, become an issue, particularly in our, in our longer stay patients. There's also the effects of an underlying cause for dysphagia. So if somebody's come in and then we know that they've got an underlying progressive neurological problem or a new acquired neurological problem, such as a brain injury, they've got issues around or a pharyngeal or laryngeal trauma. We've also got the effects of things like gastroesophageal reflux. 
And then on top of that, the medications that we need to give patients in ITU, some of those meds that we give them, we know um, can cause um, pharyngeal weakness. For example, midazolam is known to cause a bit of pharyngeal weakness. So lots and lots of things that we need to do and to use with our patients in intensive care can land them up with swallowing problems. And interestingly, around 49% of patients that have been intubated were reported in 2018 in the systematic review to have dysphagia. So that's for our tracheostomized population. On top of it, they have the additional issue of having a, a hole in their system. And we know that that can disrupt the sensation, but also subglottic pressures, all of which are kind of really important for well-functioning swallowing system. So there's some of the things that we might want to do about that is to take a really thorough case history and look at anything that might have happened pre-hospital. What are they looking like now in terms of a cranial nerve? So that's also motor and sensory. Can they manage their own secretions? What medications are they on? And then having a look specifically at the type of tracheostomy that they have and what we can do to normalise the upper airway as much as possible. By that, I mean return them to normal subglottic airflow and normal sensation as much as we can. So we would do that via assessing people for suitability for cuff deflation. They've got a cuff on the tracheostomy. If we can get it down, get normal airflow, we can figure out what's their voice sounding like, can they swallow their own secretions, what's their cough like. Having a trachea doesn't mean you can't eat and drink. And I think one of the things that speech and language therapists in critical care really want to do is make sure that the patients who aren't dysphagic and who can eat and drink are helped to do so as early as possible. We can do that by our clinical evaluation. And sometimes we might need something a bit extra in terms of instrumental assessment. So we would do that using fees. So that's fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, where we pass a little camera transnasally and have a look down into the patient's pharynx and larynx and have a look at both of the structures. And then we can actually watch them swallowing. We can give them something to eat and drink. And that gives us a really great idea of what their muscle and, and sensory function is like. And we know that identifying problems with swallowing early in intensive care means that we can manage those problems. We know this from uh, National Tracheostomy Safety Project results that we can get people eating and drinking earlier, um, which improves the quality of life. We know from projects like the NTSP that patients tell us they want to be able to eat and drink, they want to be able to talk. So if we can help them do that earlier, that's better. But managing their dysphagia means we can reduce the amount of time they spend within ITU. And it also means that we can help to reduce the amount of time they spend in, in hospital. Do you think that your role within ITU has been brought forward in, in, sort of in the weaning process? We had a lot of patients um, through the COVID period that had some airway swelling. That was quite a common finding. And the intensivists on my team were certainly sort of aware of the effects of that and we were able to do fees and scope to see what the larynx looked like and help decisions regarding decannulation appropriately so if a patient sounded like maybe they didn't have much air past the tracheostomy when they had the speaking valve on we could say well yep it looks clear from vocal folds up so that gives us some more confidence to take the trachea tube out. It's not something which I've come across certainly in the in the areas where where I've worked in in critical care. Do you think it's a it's a skill that's perhaps a bit more um, regional in terms of whether it's something that's routinely formed by speech and language therapists? It's a brilliant tool to have. We are two instrumental assessments that we have as speech therapists, pretty much nasoendoscopy for swallowing or video fluoroscopy down in radiology with the intensive care population. We can't often get them down to radiology. Um, and we also want to have a better look at secretions in the pharynx and larynx than video would let us see. 
So it's a really useful tool on ITU. But as you say, not all units have it. Not all speech and language therapists have competencies in, in fees assessment. It is something that we'd like to see more people developing those skills because it's such a useful tool for our critical care patients. I think it's kind of growing and spreading gradually, isn't it? Certainly, you know, there's a time in Wales where nobody did fees, but we now have a situation where there's a really nice fees programme that's been set up and is running well at Morrison Hospital in Swansea. I know from our own health board and so one of our goals is to get going with setting up a fee service and we're on with the training and we've got the kit and so there's wheels in motion with that I think certainly in various regions and I think our hope our vision would be that eventually across the UK it would be something that becomes more commonly used in ICU because I think once people have used it and seen the value and seen how it can change patient management it's a good thing. But how does that differ to the non-critical care setting? I suppose we are very aware that although most hospitals and acute trusts and community trusts will be aware of the role of SLT, they may not be aware of the role of SLT in ITU. So just that what we're trying to do in terms of the tracky clinical excellence network that we've got set up through Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists, we're trying to use that national network to train up those ward-based or community-based SLTs to look after those tracheostomy ventilated patients across the board, whether that's in ITU, whether that's on the wards, whether that's in the community and nursing homes. But essentially, you know, any speech and language therapist can go on to ITU and do a really good assessment of somebody's communication and swallowing without knowing anything about ventilator or tracheostomy. And that's also what we're trying to advocate our colleagues to do. Rehab was touched upon as part of what Neve was saying. If I could just ask more about your role within the rehabilitation process. I mean, another kind of one of our mantras is if you don't use it, you lose it. So the idea of starting swallow rehabilitation alongside that laryngeal rehabilitation really early on while the patient is still ventilated, enabling patients to meet their own goals and not be thirsty or hungry. We know that restoring laryngeal sensation early helps improve that synchrony between swallow and respiration that must happen safely and timely so that if you can incorporate the same principles of early rehab that our physio colleagues have with kind of early rehab early mobilization of critical care patients in order to optimize their positioning in order to optimize muscle function that's what we're trying to do we're trying to get in really early start rehab early so that it exposes that larynx for instance to normal pressures, to normal sensation as quickly and thoroughly and as safely as possible. And then I think long term, some of the critical care effects in some of the patients we see are voice problems that you can see related to intubation trauma. And that's where our head and neck and voice colleagues have a lot to offer in terms of their ongoing care for and rehab of patients with voice problems. And some of our patients also have long-term ventilation problems and they need ex our expertise um, in terms of choosing the right kind of tracheostomy tubes for them and assisting in the rehabilitation of those patients with tracheostomy tubes so that they can either be decannulated eventually or that they can live safely with their tracheostomy tube and enables them to either taste or smell or communicate. That's absolutely right, Sue, and I think there are ever more therapies that we can offer um, as time goes by. I was just thinking about one of our colleagues, Sarah Wallace, and, and a group of trial pharyngeal electrical stimulation with a group of their patients in Withenshaw ICU, and that had some really interesting outcomes around actually 
applying or doing something to the patient to promote and support swallowing function and to resolve swallowing dysfunction as soon as possible. So that's certainly a newer and, and an exciting kind of thing that we can think about. Um, we've also got other novel therapies like expiratory muscle strength training, for example that might be suitable for some of our patients. So looking at working the muscles used in expiration and how that can also impact some of the muscles that we use for swallowing and improve airway protection during swallowing. So yeah, I think you know, there, there is more that we can actually deliver in terms of actually getting in there with equipment and, and providing therapy for patients as well. During COVID times, one of the things we've tried to do locally is to try and give a little bit of support to some of our ITU follow-up clinics. It's not an area where certainly locally speech therapies had much to do, but that's been really helpful to get involved and link in with those clinics, provide them with information on swallowing and voice problems, and to start to make those links and start to think about how we can still keep looking after those patients down towards the end of the pathway, because a lot of them leave and get home and think, what on earth just happened to me? Um, and then may have more questions about swallowing and communication and, and voices. Speech therapists can be there for rehab at all parts of the pathway. I think just more generally in, in the rehab process, if you get those patients that are withdrawing or not buying into rehab and not really participating, if we can get in there and work on communication, if that's possibly what's stopping them, if we can get in good communication going get that patient buy-in, make them feel connected, make them feel part of a system that's looking out for them getting the best results, then that can have a big impact on rehab direction. Not having a voice is often the single most distressing thing that they remember of being on critical care. What do you think the common misconceptions about speech and language therapy are? I think for your hospital doctor, and team that the kind of common misconception is that we just come along and make people nil by mouth which is absolutely a misconception you can't swallow unless you start swallowing so the kind of last resort would be to keep somebody nil by mouth and the idea would be that you assess what they can swallow safely even if it's just ice chips and a general misconception is that speech and language therapists kind of delay decision making and slow down the tracky wean because we flag up all these issues. I think what we bring to the table is um, an awareness of the risk factors that make the patient fail their tracky wean or delay their tracky wean unnecessarily. And so what we're always trying to do is flag up those and then provide input and rehabilitation where possible. One of the kind of more general misconceptions is that for our patients, eating and drinking while they're on ITU isn't important. Whereas we know that restoring any kind of communication, whether that's verbal or nonverbal, immediately opens up awareness about patients' mental state. They can communicate about their pain levels and it allows nurses to provide more nuanced care and nuanced reassurance. The misconception that eating and drinking aren't important, but we know that patients experience thirst and that's a high fear factor for them to be so thirsty and a discomfort. And the positive spin on that to challenge that misconception is that we have an active speech and language therapy community who are involved in kind of upskilling and training our colleagues to be responsive, quick down to ITU, responding to referrals and, you know, helping patients to communicate in any way and eat and drink. I think the idea that you can't find us, you know, that you refer for speech and language therapy and they don't appear. And it might just be that some Hospitals are poorly resourced and not many units specifically fund speech and language therapy for critical care. But, you know, we do have really good examples nationally across the UK of speech therapists embedded in the critical care teams. And 
where they're really trying to upskill others, upskill the multidisciplinary team to be co-workers with us. Rachel is funded by Critical Care. I feel very fortunate and I have to say it's massively helped my role and helped what I'm able to do on the unit. Being able to take part in multidisciplinary assessments, being able to deliver kind of quick and easy teaching kind of moments on the unit. It's been a revelation being part of the team. And what was interesting is that by being here, I can just see, okay, this needs doing, that needs doing and crack on and do it rather than having to wait for referrals. If it has to be a referral-based service, that we probably only refer at the point where we realise there's a problem, rather than referring at the point where we think you could be involved in the rehabilitation to actually prevent a problem, rather than trying to be a solution to a problem. Speech and language therapists, like physios and, and OTs, you know, we, we kind of own rehab, if you like, and that's not meant to sound big-headed, but, you know, we are the people delivering rehab. So, arguably, we are the people who are defining who needs rehabilitation and when. And my argument is that if you're not there from day zero and seeing the patients through their intubation, their decision for tracheostomy, their tracheostomy, then you don't really understand that journey and you don't necessarily know exactly the right point for effective intervention by yourself and your colleagues. Again, it's just saying absolutely let's be honest about what those misconceptions are but you know we need to hear that we kind of know that as a profession we understand that there might be issues also about trust and about involvement in a new member of the team that you don't really know what they can contribute or whether they're going to be trustworthy whether they're going to come back the next day and as a speech and language therapy profession we also have to own that we have to be reliable we have to come back again we have to involve ourselves as much as we can in the whole team discussions and the team decisions so that we can be seen to be people with the right kind of knowledge, the right kind of skill set, and know when to offer that at the right time for each patient. Mm-hmm.